Did some stone saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. I went wandering. Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity. Face to face, I'm Sean McCraney, your host. If you have family and friends who would like to watch the show and don't receive it, they can go online, www.bornagainmormon.com. Click on the TV shows, follow. It will take you exactly where you need to go. Follow the directions. You can watch the show from anywhere in the world. I was a born-again Mormon. Ask your local bookstores. Most of them in this area carry it. If they don't carry it, have them contact us uh, at our website, and we'll make sure they get those books. And, of course, you can always get the book from us at the website, and we offer it for free to those who cannot afford one, free to anyone who's LDS who refuses to buy one. And uh, just go to www.bornagainmormon.com. Hey, how are you coming along on your abandoned ship project? Send a message, my friends. Send a message straight up there to North Temple Towers and tell them you're not going to stand by any longer. You're going to stand up and loose yourself from the chains of Mormonism. Get your name off those uh, records and into the Lamb's Book of Life. Renounce the temple rites. Renounce polygamy as a true principle before, now, and forever, which it still stands as a true principle in Mormonism, Salt Lake City, not FLDS. Renounce the false priesthood, the country club elitism, and everything that holds you bound. Abandon ship. You can go to our website. You can go to utlm.org. You can go to mormonnomore.org, I think. Could be .com, mormonnomore. All of those places have detailed instructions on how to get your name off the records of the church, LDS Church. Have you heard or seen or this thing by Hugh Nibley? It's ancient. Hugh Nibley, a prominent LDS scholar, and he used to give you these lists, like we're going through the 17 points of the true church the LDS used. Well, Hugh Nibley gave this kind of summary of what you would have to do if you were to write the Book of Mormon. And he would go through and he'd say, uh, you have to be uh, uneducated, you know, dumb as a hayseed, and never known anything, and write this, and you'd have to know about ancient civilizations, and never had heard of them, and all kinds of stuff. It's this point after point after point about the miraculous way the, the Book of Mormon came forward. Well, somebody forwarded uh, me this three-minute uh, message. Uh, actually, Micah and Celeste forwarded it to me, and it's pretty humorous, so we're going to play it for you now.
Often get people who write and say, you know, I, I don't know about everything else in the church, but the Book of Mormon, it just it couldn't have been written by anybody uh, else but God, the hand of God. And that was a little sampling of some of the reasons why you might question that book uh, as being author, authored by the Lord Himself. We received quite a bit of response from last week's show. Many of you appreciated the show because my wife and daughters were here speaking about being LDS and becoming Christian. Thank you for your kind thoughts and sentiments, for your patience and understanding of all of our growing together in the Lord. Some of you, especially many LDS, however, accused me of misleading the audience over the years by saying that my family is LDS when they are obviously not. One critic who was LDS wrote, quote, it seems you have not been completely upfront about some things. What a surprise. You always say your wife is LDS. From her responses, she is not. You always make it seem like she is active in the church. I am very sorry for you. You are leading your family away from Christ. You know, sometimes I don't even know what to say when I get things like this. I'm leading them away from Christ. You saw them on the show. You heard them speak about what it meant to come to know the true and living God in our home relative to just having a religion. My wife has a very good and open uh, relationship with the stake president of the LDS Church in the area that we live. He, she speaks completely, openly, and honestly about her beliefs in, as a Christian woman. But she also uh, attends that, that ward with her mother, as she said. She still goes sometimes with our daughters. Her name is still on the record of the church. She just doesn't believe what is considered, considered proprietary Mormon doctrine. Is she alone in this state? Not in the least. In fact, I would suggest that the majority, the majority of the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, do not believe what, they, what the doctrine says they should believe. That these are the people we're trying to cause you people to stand up and say, listen, we just don't believe this stuff anymore. Because when you get in the quiet living rooms of people's homes or you're on a drive with somebody and you start talking about this stuff, 
It's only the stalwart defenders of the faith that say, we know there was golden plates. We know polygamy was right. We know blood atonement was good. All these different things. But most people are like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that golden plate bit. I don't know about it. Most people are saying that. They're going to the church because it's a good social structure. We need people to be going to church because they love the Lord Jesus Christ and have been born again. That's the purpose. We have also had a number of people who ranged in emotion from being disappointed with me to downright disgusted in the way I handled an LDS caller last week. Many of you thought I was too aggressive or that I wasn't loving enough or just plain rude and impolite to him because I didn't give him a chance to represent his LDS views. There were even a number of Christians who emailed me and said that I was out of line in the way that I responded to him. They said things like, this is not what's going to reach these LDS people, this type of attitude. I got to explain a couple things here. First, I know this man. I've sat down with him face to face. It's not like he's a, a strange caller or something. I know who he is and what he is is a defender of the faith. He is not calling to learn anything or in order to gain wisdom about the Bible. He's not a seeker of truth. What he was and what he is and continues to be is a self-appointed defender of the LDS faith. And his purpose in calling is to argue and spin and muddy the waters and create a reasonable doubt in the minds of seeking LDS people. That's his purpose, okay? To give this caller a voice would be antithetical to our purposes, which is to clarify, uh, not obfuscate, the issues at hand. Now, to handle him with what some of you call love um, is what he is looking for me to do. You see, on a live show, when I can be, when he calls and I want to personally look good to you, so I'm like, well, go ahead, brother. Tell us what you have to say about your, your Mormon thoughts, and I'll listen. Uh, then he gets to step in and say, yeah, and he gets, or he'll do it really kindly, and then people are influenced. I'm not going to do that. It would be like me having a, a raving KKK member stand up at an NAACP meeting and speak. I mean, come on. Do you, have, do you see the LDS having uh, Christian uh, uh, pastors and preachers and ministers up at their general conference speaking? Do you see them on the BYU channel saying, hey, I want to say something that's wrong with Mormonism? Never. So why would we have somebody calling here and me just invite them and out of love for the self-appointed apologist, be kind to him? Now, I hope you know that when we have someone who's LDS call, and I do have the discernment, sometimes I fail, but I do have the discernment to know they are seeking and truly want to talk about something of importance, that I do give them the respect. And I, but when it's these guys who they have their agenda, it isn't going to happen. And we're going to confront them with biblical Christianity uh, all the way down the line, whether you like it or not. Okay. Finally, there has been a great outpouring from last week's show relative to the LDS stance on paid clergy. Jay Fox, LDS, wrote, quote, I know what you're up to. I knew you were all about the money. Can't you work like everyone else and still preach your false doctrines? You go out and purchase a cheesy pair of preacher glasses, typical of all born-again freak ministers, and your attire certainly doesn't work. That kind of hurts my feelings. Um, I think you are a thief, he writes. Go to the mountain, my friend, and get educated. Do something with your life. In a little less personal response, Elliot wrote, quote, No one in the Lord's true and restored church receives fil filthy lucre for serving God. 
Some men who have dedicated all their lives and time and talents and energies to his work are reimbursed for their living expenses, but no one is getting rich like you Christian televangelists. <laughs> well, a great researcher and supporter of our ministry, John M., did some outstanding digging for us relative to the financial side of Mormonism. Thank you, John. And remember, according to Mormons, no true church, no restored gospel could ever have a paid clergy, right? Well, according to D. Michael Quinn, the, uh, in his book, The Mormon Hierarchy, Extensions of Power, stake presidents used to charge $1 per patriarchal blessings. Excuse me, stake patriarchs used to charge a dollar for every patriarchal blessing they gave. This increased to $2 by the end of the 19th century. Strangely, patriarchs started encouraging faithful members to receive numerous patriarchal blessings over the course of their lives. That's such a strange thing, isn't it? During Brigham Young's reign, bishops took whatever they desired from all non-cash tithing donations. The LDS used to submit like corn or animals as part of their tithing, and the bishops of the wards were allowed to take whatever they wanted from those contributions. In 1844, John Taylor limited bishops to 8% of the tithing being collected, while stake presidents got 2% of all the tithing collected by the bishops in their stakes. No paid clergy. This was freaking multi-level marketing profiteering, is what this was. In 1888, Wilford Woodruff established set salaries for stake presidents and set up committees to allocate 10% of the tithings collected by the stakes to the bishops of that stake. In the April 1896 General Conference, the First Presidency announced an end to salaries for local officers and to only pay um, the apostles of the church monies. By 1904, stake presidents were only receiving $300 per year for their work, and as late as 1920, some bishops still reported to have been receiving 10% of the tithes collected in their wards. So, in, 19, in 1896, it was announced only apostles were to receive a set salary. Now, we know this is no longer true. There's CES members, there's all kinds of other people, 70 and church office built people in the employee of the church who receive salaries. But what about these apostles and their salaries? These special witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ who are no different in their divine call than Peter and James and John. How are they compensated? First, we know they receive money from the coffers of the church. How much they receive, we do not know. Second, they can write books, especially if they're an apostle, and have a built-in market of at least 10 million people faithfully waiting to buy them. The higher they're up, for instance, profit, the more people that would probably buy the book. Last week, I said that I would be willing to bet that Thomas S. Monson, current prophet of the LDS Church, was a multimillionaire, but questioned how he would acquire such wealth, having been a non-paid employee for most of his life. Someone called the show and said that they had heard that these apostles were conveniently placed on boards as directors or in different positions on boards, and that's how they continued to amass wealth as uh, apostles for the Lord, but also as businessmen. According to Michael Quinn's research in Extensions of Power, page 220 to 222, this caller was absolutely correct. Now, to be a director in a company, 
usually means six day-long meetings, board meetings per year, and a week's worth or more of committee participation per year by the director or member of the board. According to CNNMoney.com, the average annual director's compensation in 2006 was as follows. A director in the manufacturing sector received $109,000 per year. A director in financial services received an average of $83,000 per year. And a director who sat on the board of a service sector received an average of $106,250 per year. So Quinn decided to reach the, uh, research the first presidency in the 12 apostles of 1984. Here is what they found. President Spencer W. Kimball, who, this was 1984, who had been incapacitated since 1982, was a director on the Bonneville International Corporation. First Counselor Marion G. Romney, who, would, who had also been incapacitated for years, was a chairman of Beneficial Development Company, chairman of Beneficial Life Insurance Company, chairman of LDS Social Service Incorporated, director of Bonneville International Corporation, and director of Deseret Management Company. Second Counselor Gordon B. Hinckley, uh, who later became the prophet, was the chairman of Deseret Management Corporation Foundation, director of Bonneville International Corporation, director of Deseret Management Company, director of KIRO Incorporate of Seattle, director of Utah Power and Light, and director of Zion's First National Bank, all while they were apostles of the Lord. President of the Quorum of 12, Ezra Taft Benson, was a director of the Beneficial Life Insurance Company. Howard W. Hunter was president of the Polynesian Cultural Center in Hawaii, owned by the LDS Church. Director of the Beneficial Life Insurance Company. Director of Continental Western Life Insurance Company. Director of Deseret Federal Savings and Loan. Director of First Security Bank of Utah. Director of First Security Corporation. Director of Heber J. Grant Incorporated. Director of PHA. PHA Life Insurance Company in Oregon, Director of Watson Land Company in Los Angeles, Director of Western American Life Insurance Company. Thomas S. Monson, who is now the prophet of the church, was president and chairman of the Deseret News Publishing Company, vice president of LDS Social Services, vice president of Newspaper Agency Corporation, director of Beneficial Life Insurance Company, director of Commercial Security Bank, director of Commercial Security Bank Corporation, Director of Continental Western Life Insurance Company, Director of Deseret Management Companies, Director of IHC Hospitals Incorporated, Director of Mountain States Telephone and Telegraph Company, Director of Murdoch Travel, Director of PHA Life Insurance Company in Oregon, Director of Pioneer Memorial Theater, and Director of Western American Life Insurance Company. I could go through and name all the rest of the 12 apostles, and they were all on some company or another, at least four except for Russell M. Nelson, who was a retired physician who was put as a director of Zion's First National Bank. So I'm sure he had all the training for that. Um, not paid clergy, no, no paid clergy. A Latter-day Saint must go to the temple to live with God in the celestial kingdom. Paying tithing 10% is mandatory to enter a temple so as to qualify. Tithing dollars are used to buy up businesses that the LDS Church owns. Apostles are made directors of those businesses and receive director's compensation for their position. No paid clergy. Right. All right, let's get a head start on the phones. Let's open them up, 801-973-TV20, uh, 801-973-8820. And let's have a prayer before we la uh, launch into tonight's quick topic. 
Lord, we need you. We love you. We're fighting a battle of principalities unseen. So we ask you to be uh, here with uh, our viewers at home, those seeking for truth, our operators, our volunteers, our audience, and me that I'll say what you want me to say. In Jesus' name, amen. The seventh point of the 17 points of the true church the LDS espouse is baptism must be done by immersion. That's all the seventh point says. And I have no problem with that. Uh, baptism by immersion seems to best fit the historical ties to the uh, Judaic conversion rites and to the ultimate meaning of the ordinance. Immersion is good, a must. I don't believe so. I think there are places where there, it's impossible to baptize somebody by immersion. Antarctica in the middle of winter, somebody's a believer and wants to be baptized. You do the best you can. But I believe that immersion is the, is the best way if we, if we have the opportunity. Now, baptism is a means to understand identification. We identify with something through an act of baptism. There are at least seven different types of baptism in the Bible, and all of them are applied in different ways. There are wet baptisms. There are dry baptisms. There are even damp baptisms. There's baptisms unto Moses. There's baptisms uh, of the Holy Spirit. There's baptisms of to a trial and suffering. There's baptisms unto Jesus Christ. I am simply going to agree with number seven with the statement that the tr a true church would baptize by immersion. But Mormonism does not stop there. They add that baptism is for, quote, the remission of sins by one holding the proper authority. We've already covered the proper authority bit back in the show, so I'm not going to talk. But I want to talk to you about for remission of sins. They, they say baptism must occur by immersion, but it's for the remission of sins. Um, there is one and only one way to receive a remission of your sins. And that is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, not through baptism, not through temple ordinances or rites, not by being shot by a firing squad and shedding your own blood, by Jesus' shed blood alone. Matthew chapter 20, uh, 26 verse 28 says, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Okay? Acts 10.43 says, to give him all the prophets witness, listen, that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Okay. First Peter 1.18 says, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It's talking about how that we are redeemed by those by his precious blood and not by corruptible things. Now, one of the verses the LDS use to tie the remissions of sin to the ordinance of baptism is in Acts 2.38. Okay? Peter says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, the Bible is clear on what is necessary for salvation. So how are we going to take this phrase in the Bible that says, where Peter is saying, hey, you know, uh, stand up, be baptized for the remission of sins. I've covered this before, but it bears repeating, okay? The key is in the Greek. Now, don't go to sleep. It's just going to take me two minutes to explain this, but it's worth it, okay? If a missionary says, it says right here, be baptized for a remission of sins, all right? Listen. It says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. 
That four word is E-I-S, ice, ice in the Greek, okay? And it's a preposition that can indicate causality, meaning in order to obtain or attain something, or it, it is a resultant preposition, meaning because of. Let me explain that. So let's read this with the uh, causality preposition meaning. Ready? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, in order to attain a remission of sins. That would be the causal prepositional meaning, if we read it that way. Now let's read it with the prepositional meaning being uh, resultant. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, because you have received a remission of your sins. Okay? Guess what the preposition is used in this verse? Dun, da, da, da. It's the resultant. And so we read this passage, if you were good in Greek, and I'm not, but I can study a little bit, and it says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, because of, or as a result of, the remission of your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's the only way it comes. This is why we get baptized, my friends. This is why we are forgiven. Uh, not, we, we are baptized because we have been forgiven. We are not baptized to be forgiven forgiven. Now, why would a child get baptized in Mormonism who, according to them, has no sin? And why would, more importantly, why would Jesus have been baptized if it was for a remission of sin? Okay? It is certainly not for a remission of sin, but like so many other issues, Mormonism has taken a wonderful and meaningful act like baptism, and they've made it perfunctory, and they've assigned it to a little child who doesn't even know what it means. You know, and I mean, you talked to them, I sort of remember when I was baptized. You want it to be for someone who has faith in Jesus Christ, and because they know they've been forgiven, they go and are baptized. Can you see that simple thing here, just with the subject of baptism? Now, there's two other verses they like to use, 1 Peter 3.21 and Mark 6.16. And if you can watch our show on baptism in 2006 if you want to get the answers about how, uh, what they mean by that. Uh, but uh, for that, we're going to go to the mat, we're going to go to the phones and we're going to Matthew in Salt Lake City on line two. Matthew, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how's it going? Going well. How are you? I'm doing good. Hey, listen, I'm not going to keep you too long, but I just wanted a uh, couple quick points. Number one is I am glad that you finally uh, kind of drawn a, a line in the sand with Alan. He doesn't want to add to discourse. He just wants to use your program as a little soapbox to stand up and uh, get his talking points in. Yes, he does. And thank you for recognizing that, Matthew. Well, Sean, I was uh, watching the first time, I think it was the first time he ever called in about a year, year and a half ago. And he, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I like a glass of wine once in a while. I still have a cup of coffee, but deep in my heart, I believe that the church is true and I just got a question, if Alan is listening, why doesn't he stand up in his sacrament meeting and tell them that he likes a glass of wine once in a while or a cup of coffee and see how embracing and accepting the Mormon church is of people that don't toe the line 100%. Good they question. Would, they would ostracize him because that's how they act. If you're not perfect, you are, they don't want to hear a word you've got to say. And uh, Alan, if you're listening, I, you, you know that's true, whether you'll admit it or not, uh, I don't know whether he would or not, but if he wants to stand up in a, in a, a testimony meeting and, and tell his congregation that he, you know, he struggles like normal people do, that's just not done. Mormons will not admit any faults at all. They Amen to that, my friend. Great call, oh. Matthew. Thank you. Okay, take care. Okay, bye-bye.
I was having a conversation uh, with some dear friends of mine last uh, Sunday, and we were talking about how the, the whole system is for perfection and for outwardly appearing so good. And uh, most of us there at the table came from families that we, we just didn't have a chance, either from our personalities or from the family structure. And these are the people we're calling to. Those of you who were born into the LDS church, your mom and dad were pioneers, came across the, the plains or whatever. And, you know, you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm LDS, but I don't even know what that means. And you take another toke and you drink another beer and you, you do what else. And you're just like, man, my life's such a wreck. But I'm not living up to the celestial way. You know, cut this stuff off and come to know the Lord and let him tell you who you are to him. And it will change your life radically. Okay, we're going to Cherise, first-time caller in Taylorsville. Cherise, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi, how are you? I'm okay, how are you? I'm doing well. Good. I, this, I pretty much know the answer to this, but um, I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. Uh, when, uh, sorry, emotional. When someone who is LDS uh, passes away, Yeah. what's the likelihood, I mean, of them ending up in heaven? Well, Sharice, um, I'm sorry, you must have lost somebody you care about deeply or you're worried about somebody that's LDS and not, is that the case? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, my whole family's LDS and I, there are a lot of people I love who are LDS. Uh -huh. And here's the bottom line. You don't know what's in their heart. You don't know if they've sat there meeting after meeting and said, you know, this, this thing is killing me. I, I just really love you, Lord. I'm, I just don't know what else to do. You don't know if they've ever asked Jesus into their heart. We don't know if they've been born again. We don't know. I wouldn't even say a, a mass murderer. I wouldn't even say a mass murderer is in hell. I don't have that right. I don't know. Uh -huh. So, you know, if, a mass, if I'm not going to say a mass murderer is burning in hell uh, because I don't know their heart, I'm not going to say a Latter-day Saint who certainly is striving for, for God in some way uh, that they don't know Jesus. But I will, I will qualify all that by saying, if someone dies and does not know Jesus, uh -huh. then they are going to hell. But, but we don't know who they are. So don't worry yourself and, and try to remember this too. Whatever, whatever happens after this life, you're going to be fine with it because it's what God's will is. Yeah. It, you're gonna, and you will, you cannot go wrong in trusting him. It's not going to be like you're going to be living in eternity thinking, God, you made a mistake with this one. I don't think you're going to have to worry about that at all, Sharice. He's a God of love. He's not looking for reasons to, to cast people into hell. He's looking for every reason to save them. Yeah. Okay? I, I do know that. I just... <laughs> Wanted to hear it? <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those things you, you know, you have a hard time. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, it is. So, and you know, and, and to be quite frank, it doesn't just apply to the Mormons as sitting in their pews. It's a lot more obvious with Mormons because they have such twisted stuff going on that they're taught. But you know, it applies to every single person in every single church. Yeah. You can take the most popular Christian church where people are up shouting and singing. And I'm not going to say, hey, you know, there who's going to hell or not. It's a personal thing. Uh -huh. All right, my sister. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. God bless. God bless you too. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Really quick, uh, I got an email that said, what are some good questions that will just nail the missionaries to the wall? They, uh, they are, we need showstoppers because they're relentless and they won't leave me alone. Okay, I, I, wrote, I wrote down a few. One, ask them, why uh, when uh, Jesus was on the cross and, uh, the veil, and he dies and the veil's ripped in two, why did Joseph Smith 
sew that veil back up and put it up in a temple for people to try to get through now through their worthiness stuff. Why, why did that? That's one. Then I would ask them about, are you saved? And then they will say, uh, you know, either yes or no, and you go from there. Are you saved? And just be point blank with, are you saved? Well, you know, well, I can already tell by that answer you got a problem. And then you just build on that one and stick to it. Are you saved? Well, what does that mean? Well, what does it say? You know, take out the scriptures. The next one. Uh, why did Joseph Smith take teenage girl to be his wives and, and hide it from Emma? You know, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. He had one wife. Oh, yeah? Well, let's pull out a book by Todd Compton and let's read about it. Who's LDS? Who's a, who's a history uh, genius and wrote this book about Joseph Smith's wife called In Sacred Loneliness? So then let me ask you again, Elder, why did Joseph Smith take teenage girls and make them their wives? Make them his wife? So, uh, and uh, then I would also say, Elder, how do you know Mormonism is true? This is a good one. If you're sharp, how do you know Mormonism is true? Well, I know that I know that I know. I know from the feelings. Of, well, how do you know? And just take it through, okay? And just use the uh, Islam. How do they know it's true? Jehovah's Witnesses, you've been hearing these things about Mormonism since you were a child. How do you know it's true? And go through and really talk about knowledge and epistemological knowledge and, and all that stuff. And then also it's good to talk to the elders about their sin. You know, elder, tell me about your sin. Well, I try not to sin. And just go through, well, you know you sin, don't you? Well, and then take out Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 and start reading about what Jesus said sin is, and you'll convict them. So those are some things that I would throw out at the missionaries. That's what I do. Okay, we are going to Bill in West Valley City. Bill, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello. Hello, Bill. You're on the air. Hi, I like your show. Thanks, Bill. Uh, I saw your show a couple weeks ago. Yeah? You were talking about the mustard seed parable. Yes. And... Uh, I just wanted to say that you referred to the amount of faith uh -huh. in the mustard seed. Uh -huh. And it occurs to me that it is not really the amount. It's the quality. But the quality. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree uh, that you could look at it that way, too. I think it works. Well, I think it's an important factor because... A mustard seed is so small, I believe I've heard people say you can hold a thousand of them in the palm of your hand. Uh -huh. And it seems to me that if, if, if the Son of God was referring to something so small, uh -huh. he wouldn't be referring to it as something as a great quantity. I think uh, the only reason I uh, believe that the mustard seed uh, parable that Jesus used or analogy that he uses is because he always talks about how great is their faith. And, uh, you know, it could be great qualitatively, but I think it's great, great quantitatively. And I believe that a mustard seed of faith is a great quantity of faith because with it you could move mountains. But you're saying a mustard seed of faith is a great quality of faith. I just think in, in an argument, in a court of law, I might be able to argue it and win it against you, but it doesn't matter to me. If you're right, I'm wrong. Mia culpa, I bow to well, you, and let's I go forward. I don't want to get into the semantics of words. Well, I think that is a semantical discussion, but it's okay. It's not a, it's not a deal breaker. Uh, you know, we, we want to know who Jesus is, and that's the real thing that we're focusing on. But I appreciate the call, Bill. Okay, and um, I have one other thought. Okay. Um, I, I listen to a lot of... Uh, TV, uh, uh, Talk a little bit louder, my brother. 
I say I, I listen to a lot of TV pastors or mm -hmm. ministers or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And I believe that you exhibit quite a bit of intelligence. Well, thank and, you. Uh, I don't know that uh, disqualifying the Mormon part of that religion is, is probably the best thing you can do. Yeah, what would you suggest? Um, just just uh, try to emphasize what Jesus said and what it really means. Because yeah. I don't think a lot of people understand what he actually said. What he actually said was a, a lot in the form of parable. Yes. And, and you can say analogy or, or, or whatever word you want to use. But it's an example. Yeah. It's an example. And although the Mormons may have thrown a lot of crap on top of their religion, uh, you know, just 